Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are on chapter four of the book of Shemot, chapter four of the book of Exodus. Uh, we're almost done sort of with the extended interaction between Moshe and the Holy One at the burning bush. The last verse that we spent time in last week um, was uh, verse 10. We got through some of the Rashi's, not all the Rashi's. So remind us what's happening in verse 10. This is the first time we have Moshe self-identifying as not necessarily being the appropriate leader because this is a, um, a, a mission of words and he's not a man of words with the built-in irony that he becomes the man of words, that becomes the person whose words most influenced Jewish, the Jewish people. By Moshe, Adonai, verse 10, God said, Moshe said to God, be Adonai, please my God, be kind of like Nah. Uh, as Rick pointed out in the next, in an upcoming verse, we're going to have be and Nah in the same verse. Lo ish manochi, I'm not a man of darim, ha ha, it's a funny joke. Gam mitmo, gam shil shom, neither, and we spent a lot of time on this in the Rashi, so I can go deep into it, but neither from yesterday nor from the day before. Gam le azda bercha el nor from the day on which you, st- um, you started talking to your servant, your servant meaning me, ki chavad peh u chavad lashon anochi, because I am kvad of peh, I am heavy of mouth, or any other things that heavy can mean, or that kvad can mean, u chavad lashon, and heavy of tongue, am I. Okay, so we did the Rashi on the Tmol Shalshom, we did not do the Rashi on chavad peh, I'm pretty sure. So let's start there. Uh, Matt, I don't think we've heard from you in a while. Do you want to want to um, pick up on the Rashi on Chavad Peh? Hi. Um, I'm uh, actually out walking. Thank you. So you are you're Chavad Regal right now. So yeah, yeah can't do it. Okay. Uh, Rebecca or, or Leonard, you can choose between the two of you. When do you want to read the Rashi? Uh, okay. I'm sorry. Where Where is... The Rashi, this is verse 10. Oh, at the very end. Verse 10, the, the last little bit of Rashi is Rashi comments on Chvad Peh. Okay. Chvad Peh. Bichvedut ani medaber uvilshon la... I don't know the abbreviations. Okay. So um, first do the three first three words, and then we'll, we'll do the next, the last two words. Okay. With heaviness, I speak... Okay, so my question to everyone on that phrase is, we come from the supposition that Rashi never says nothing. When he says something, he's never saying nothing. And even when it seems like he's saying nothing, he's saying something. So since it seems all he's done is take chvad as kind of a, um, an adjective modifying the noun peh and turned it into a noun that modifies speech, chvad peh means it is with chvadness, with heaviness, I speak. My question to you is, what, what has he said? What has he added? What, what's, as we'd say in rabbinic language, the havamina? What is the, I would have thought this, but since Rashi said his words, I don't think that. Renee? Maybe that it's, it's difficult for him to say it. Meaning, meaning think of it less as an injury to his mouth and more an injury to the the production of speech um, and 
the, the mouth is just being used as a phrase, but it's actually the speaking, not the, the organ. Okay, uh, Norm Rachel? Zilberman suggests that that last word, the one that uh, Rebecca thought might be an abbreviation, is actually an old French word, balbuz. And we'll, we'll get to that. No, oh. we'll get to that in a second. I just want okay. to, we'll get to that in a second, but I want to uh, see if anyone else has any other explanation for what, if anything, Rashi doing in the first three words, Rebecca, and then we'll hear from Joanna. Um, I'm wondering if maybe what he's trying to say is that in, in this instance of Kaved, it's actually Kavod. So I'm talking with respect in that, in, uh-huh. and, and then saying that, uh, but I still, I have a problem speaking and, and reading into the La'as, I don't speak their language or something. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's my take. <laughs> Interesting. I, that, that's interesting. Rashi on the Rashi. As we get to the last three words of the Rashi, it'll make it hard to read as if Moshe is saying, I'm speaking with honor, sir. But but I do like the play, the playfulness of the relationship between heaviness and, and honor. Um, so let's hold that, hold that up for a second. Joanna and then Rick. I don't know if this is true in other languages, but in English, and it may no longer be politically correct, We'll even see um, translations of the Bible that will say that someone who can't speak is referred to as being dumb. And that has a very negative connotation in terms of the person's intelligence, right? So I think possibly what Rashi's saying here is Moshe is a very intelligent who has this one particular disability, but it is not a reflection on his intelligence. Hmm. Interesting. Um, it's particularly interesting as we're going to read a verse or two from now where, where God mentions several different ways that a person might not be fully able and who's responsible for that. Hold on one second. I forgot to plug in one thing that makes my Wi-Fi stronger. Hold on one second. And yet, Joanna, it makes me think, and I, and I, I have no idea what the right, I, when I asked the question, what is Rashi saying with those first three words, I really meant it. I, I'm not sure exactly what he's adding, but it makes me think that, that by, changing the focus from mouth to speech it it decreases the chances that this is um that or or it it makes it harder to 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 believe that this is not about his some kind of intelligence or psychic ability because the verse originally gave rashi the opportunity to say this is this is you know he's He's, he's got two thick lips or he's got two, you know, his tongue's not working well, um, which would mean it may make it be a physical ailment as opposed to some kind of psychic or emotional one. Um, but let's all, let's hold that one up as a possibility, Rick. And then Norm. Um, hi, I just wanted to say the word um, I remembered was in the um, song of the sea. Vinaha gehu dut that the uh, chariots can't go, um, can't chase us uh, as, as much as they'd like to because they had difficulty there. So I thought it was interesting that um, Rashi chose that word. I don't uh, know. I don't know much more. There's no trope to it, but, the, <laughs> but there's no, uh, I don't know why he's. Uh, there may be no trope to it, but that's the kind of comment that, 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 that comes from the mouth of a Torah reader because like that or, or or a very intense Torah studier 
But when you, when you hear the Torah musically, you know, music is a mnemonic. It's easier to remember something. And so verses and verse associations come to someone more easily if one has sung a lot of it, right? Um, we, can, we, we can connect um, uh, words of songs that we know more easily than words of books we've written uh, or read. So uh, if, you're, um, if, if, you're, if you're a laner, then you, you, you've, you've sung that word. And so you know that it appears here, appears there in B'Shalach. Um, was Rashi winking at us? Maybe, hard to know. Sometimes a word is just a word, but I like it. Yeah, uh, that's Norm, all. Norm, and then we'll, and then we'll um, challenge ourselves for the last three words. Many people who learn a language as a child, but then leave it behind, whether due to migration or other reasons, um, often find their knowledge of that language atrophies and they can't communicate very well and it's certainly not at a high level. Um, and it may be that Rashi is suggesting that Moshe is alluding to that, that he's been away from Egyptian for so long that he really can't speak Egyptian. Even if he could speak, you know, basic Egyptian, it wouldn't be appropriate for um, the diplomacy one uses in the Pharaoh's court. Great. And so this would be Rashi reading against the classic Midrashic explanation that his heaviness of tongue was because of the incident with the coal and the diamond. This is, uh, I think we, we, we made some reference to this uh, last week. This is, I, I, I don't speak the language well, right? It's, it's not, I'm, the Torah uses the word mouth, but it's, the, it's what the mouth is able to produce because of my fluency that is the trouble, not some Im- impediment. Okay, um, let's, let's now let um, break down the last three words. So, Lamed Ayin Chipchik Zion is um, a Rashi and medieval uh, Hebrew way of referring to Loazi. Loazi means foreign. It's Rashi's way of cluing you into saying that he's going to now tell you what, what this word might have been in his contemporaneous French. The Chipchuk is just an indicator that this is uh, no longer going to be in Hebrew. And so when Rashi comes upon a word or phrase that he thinks his reader in, readers in 11th, 12th century France need, needs to have a, um, a word common to them to understand, he brings it in, right? And so he says, what might Uvilshon Loaz? So in the foreign language, what's the foreign language to, um, um, to Rashi? French, Bilbu, Bilbu. Okay, there's a wonderful set of books that has also been digitized that... Um, converts Rashi's old French. Uh, there's several versions of it. There's one that we used to use a lot in the, in the Beit Midrash that converts Rashi's old French into Yiddish. And then if you know some Yiddish, you can convert that into English. And at the back of a standard Talmud, right? A, a Talmud, you can actually see some behind me. There's um, commentary, 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 commentary. One of the commentaries is called the Hamitar Game. The translator. I forgot the name of the person, but I think he's 19th century, somewhere in Poland or maybe Lithuania. And he takes every time Rashi uses a Loazi word in his commentary in the Talmud into a French word that you might not have known if you lived in, you know, Gdansk in 1830. Uh, and he translates that into Yiddish. And that way you can uh, convert it into your own language. That only helps us if we know Yiddish, but there are also ones that do it into Hebrew. So I'm going to share one with you uh, to see what Rashi might have meant uh, with this, and then we'll get back to what Norm was saying before. One second. 
Okay, so this is an online resource of uh, every usage of Rashi. I see it says on the top, Otsar Haloazim, right? The, a collection of Loazi words, of Rashi's use of foreign words, Old French, in his commentary. And here we are, Shmot Dalad Yud, Kvad Peh, that's the word we're talking about, and it is, it is rendered as Balbe. In our version of Rashi, it's rendered as Balbu. And in what does that mean in Hebrew? Ileg, or Migam game. Migam game might be a word that more people know. To mumble, not to, or, or, or to stutter, but it's more, well, it, depending on the, on the usage, it could be to mumble or to stutter. And uh, here it says, Beharbekit Vayad, in many manuscripts, Kurim Balbu, that's the one we have. And then he puts Italkit question mark. Is this Italian? Because perhaps in French, the word disappeared. Not every word that was in French in Rashi's time is still a word in French. It could be that this word in French disappeared in the Middle Ages and turned to Bege. I don't know enough French. Occasionally, um, we can figure out from Rashi's Loazi because there's enough cognates between French and English that we know what he's talking about. I don't know the French word balbe. I don't know the French word begue, but beg, maybe begue, begue, I don't even know how to pronounce it. it, has to do with mumbling or stuttering. But this is uh, one 20th century rabbi's attempt to say, what did Rashi mean when he said, oh, what does this word mean? It means balbe. It means to stutter or it means to mumble. Okay. So um, questions, comments, Rebecca? Um, I just did a quick look on my phone and in Latin, stutter is balbutir. Mm. There. <laughs> Interesting. I wonder if um, well, this could be just a, an, a letter coincidence. Was it related to Babel, right? Because we know that the English Babel is related to Bavel here. That, so is it, um, is the B, is the Bet and the Lamed, as it were, uh, switched? Um, and even in Hebrew, live val bail means to confuse, uh, or is that just a, uh, a coincidence of letters? Joanna? In a similar vein, I'm trying to see like what associations it brings up. And before we started our discussion, as we read that, the word that popped into my mind was bulbous. And usually we use that in terms of someone's nose, right? And it refers to someone having like kind of a a wide kind of fatter nose. So then it works if by any chance that's correct, right? Like that his lips were fatter in that, you know, or his tongue was fatter and that created a difficulty of speech for him. That's interesting. I would think that bulbous in English is from bulb, right? Like it's kind of a round, unwieldy shape. It would be interesting to do some English and Romance language etymology to know if bulb and bulbous is related to the 11th century French bulb. Interesting. <coughs> um, welcome, Barry. I, I imagine you may have had a hard time getting on. I don't know why. I saw you trying to get on earlier, but um, uh, but something must have frustrated that. But welcome. I'm sorry. In, in, that was internet, internet. Okay. Might still be having a problem. All right, Joel, go ahead. Well, so first of all, Loazi comes from Lashon Amzar. Ah, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, so Loazi is of itself a Rashi Teva, a Hebrew Rashi Teva to connote a, a foreign language. Go ahead. And second of all, it's interesting that he, that uh, the dictionary translates as Legam Game because I was thinking that his, his 
גם משלשום, גם מאז, גם מפה, גם משלשום, גם מאז, גם, גם, גם. That's interesting. That, that, right? I mean, it's a big jump that the, that the guy translating Rashi's Loazi into contemporaneous Hebrew used a root that has gum in it. Um, so, but I was thinking that even, even before we, we read that, I was thinking that yes, last week. Oh, interesting. That maybe that's where it even comes from. Uh-huh. <laughs> interesting. That, 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 that the verb legam game comes from this, this scene. It's to, it's to, it's to gum gum your, your language. Could be. Um, Rebecca Leonard. I just looked up uh, one of the ways to say to mumble in French. There are, there are many different ways to say it. Interestingly, is balboutier. Balboutier. So, uh-huh. so that's definitely connected to this. Is that to mumble or to stutter? To mumble. Well, I looked up mumble and it listed as one. But there, there are more specialized words for, for stutter or actually stammer. Balboutier, stammer. Um, Rebecca, the other Rebecca, Rebecca Menes, your, your, your spoken Hebrew and your spoken modern Hebrew is more fluent than mine. If you hear Ligam game, do you hear stutter or mumble? I hear both. Uh-huh. Yes. So you would use it Same. to a kid that's not talking clearly, you know, Ligam game, but it's also um, the actual uh, deficiency. There's also Limmal male in Hebrew, which I understand to mean to mumble. I remember when I learned that word, it's in the last line of Vihietov, umimalmel et tfilati, and mimalmel is clearly built from the word mila, to word word, but to like, to be too quick with your words is to mumble, to say something not clearly. Um, so maybe mimalmel is more mumbling and migamgame is more um, stuttering. Um, and that's why Rebecca, since Rebecca Menes, since Rashi seems to double down on at the end of this short comment by making this a speech impediment, either a mumbling or stuttering, it's hard for me to understand his bechvedut animadaber as anything but him turning kvad into a, a different kind of noun chvedut, and it's not about kavod or honor, um, but it's, it's but it's possible. Let me just see the comments here, the chats. Bulbous is medically related to nose. Uh-huh. But the question is, 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 it, is, is, the, is the etymology of bulbous connected to nose? I don't know. Okay, um, good. Anything else on this verse? Okay, uh, Rebecca, since that was a very short little piece, do you want to uh, keep re- at least read the verse for verse 11? Okay. Vayomer Adonai Elav. Mi sam pela adam, o mi yasum ilem, o cheresh, o pikeach, o izer, iver, Hala, o iver, halo anochi adonai. Okay, so you can translate that. And uh, God said to him, "Who who puts who puts a mouth in man? Mm-hmm. Who's made man's mouth?" Um, o makes um, dumb or deaf or seeing or blind. Uh, behold, it is I the, I the Lord. Good, right? Elaine sometimes might be translated as mute. Um, 
right? Someone lacking speech, which I know in in the history of American English has sometimes been in a kind of terrible way coterminous with someone who would be called dumb. Um, great. So so this is this is God's initial response to Moshe's saying, "Hey, don't send me. I'm not a man of words, and my mouth does not operate normally." So. My question back to the group, what, what, what do you make of God's response and what questions do you have on God's response? Anyone? Translation is, is, uh, is on the table. We can look at some other translations, but Rebecca um, you know, nailed the meaning of what's going on. So what are your reactions or thoughts? Rebecca Leonard? Um, God's saying, well, I, you know, aren't I the one who makes somebody able to, to speak or see? Why are you telling me? I, I, I would know. Why are you declaring that, uh, um, that you have heaviness of speech? Right. Why and are so, you telling me? I, I'm the one who creates this. And so from that perspective, Rebecca, which is one of the, one of the ways to read this, if you were stage directing this, what tone of voice, if we had to anthropomorphize God to that extent, is, is God speaking with in this verse? What's the attitude? Um, a little uh, defensive and, you know, yeah. what are you, ungrateful for what I did give you? <laughs> Good. So, so verse 11 could be read with peak, particularly if we know what's coming up in verse 14, where peak turns into fury, right? But if we just peak at verse 14, which is the next time, um, um, well, God is still speaking um, in verse 12, but then Moshe speaks in verse 13. The next time God pipes up, he gets very angry. So verse 11 might be the first round of frustration, like what? Right? Um, when you insult, when, when you insult your speech, Moshe, you're insulting me. I, I'm the one responsible, right? So that's that's one, um, or or you're somehow suggesting something less in me that am i not capable of overcoming that i'm the one who does this for all human beings that's one way of understanding the attitude or the tone in this verse any others for for how how the verse could sound if you were uh, uh, staging it barry well uh moshe has been doing this through his entire uh prophetic career with with god uh always losing you barry all right, let's see if Barry can come back. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the meantime, Joanna? My comment is more about the answer to your question. So if you want to pursue your train of thought first, I'm fine to jump to someone else. Uh, I, I Now I couldn't hear you well. <laughs> <laughs> My comment is more about the language and style of the verse and a direct response to your question. So I if agree. you want to continue with your train of thought first, Okay, so let's first see, does anyone have another way of understanding the tone of voice or the attitude in Moshe's response here? Norm, Rachel? I think he may simply be informing Moshe. You know, we've all read the whole Torah at one point or another, and we've been educated Jewishly to some extent or another, and we all have the sense that, yes, God is the creator of the world. He creates everything. He knows all, does all. These things are something that we all grapple with or know or understand. But to Moshe, this is still his first encounter. And he may not realize that God is that powerful, creates everything, does so many different things, 
And he could simply be being informed, hey, I'm the one who creates sound. I'm the one who enables people to hear or see or speak and, you know, or not, as the case may be. And I'll take care of this. You won't have a problem speaking um, when you need to speak well. Wonderful, Norman, right? That another way of reading this verse is God is reassuring Moshe. I can understand, Moshe, why you be nervous. Don't worry. I've got your back. Right? I, I'm the one responsible for this very thing. And if I'm sending you and I'm the one responsible for this kind of thing, you'll be taken care of, right? And there's no, um, there's no obligatory cue. There's, there's nothing in the verse that requires us to read it one way or another. It could be verse 11 is 10 degrees of peak. And by the time we get to verse 14, it's like all peak and fury. Or it could be God's first response is, I know you're nervous, Moshe. I've got you. And then when we understand what Moshe might have meant in verse 13, and verse 13 in and of itself is open to lots of interpretations about attitude, um, it could be that God's uh, stance changes radically by verse 14. In fact, these, th- th- this, we, we could kind of set up an, um, like a, a simple box of, of two by two in terms of comparing these two verses. Like if, if, if God was was angry in this verse, then what does verse 13 mean? And then what does verse 14 mean? But if God was conciliatory and reassuring in this verse, how then, how then do we understand verse 13 and verse 14? And it's not a hundred percent clear which way we should go on it. Renee. Yeah. I was going to say something similar to you that I think he was reassuring Moshe that he knows what his motives are. And even though Moshe doesn't see what the motives are right now, he will. Yeah. Good. Uh, Andy, still muted, Andy. Hey, can you hear me now? Sorry. Okay. I would go one step further where it's, I mean, it's interesting that he's, God is not saying, look, Moshe, when you speak, you're going to be super eloquent thanks to me. So it almost seems like part and parcel of what God is doing is sort of saying, you have to have faith. I'm going to have your back. He's not specifying why, but it's almost like there's a lesson embedded here where it's like, just have faith, not just trust me, but have faith. Great. And if we link that comment to what Norm is saying, I, I really appreciate Norm's comment from before that Moshe doesn't know God yet, right? It's hard for us to like consider the Moshe character without, without knowing the full story. This is Moshe's first revelatory moment. This is Moshe's first experience of the creator of the universe. Um, Moshe might have had stories told to him, but um, we don't know that Moshe knew that God is the one who is this powerful. Right? So um, it, it could be God simply say, saying to him, I'm, I'm, I'm now teaching you an elemental piece of what it means to be in relationship with me. I, I've got you. Now, the Rashi we're going to read in a bit reads this much more pointedly and, and, um, and parses it out. But it could be that the shot is is this is the significance of the macro. God saying either, "What you think I can't do this?" or "Don't worry, Moshe, Moshe you're taken care of." Look at how um, Ever Fox translates the verse. Uh, Ever Fox always writes God as Yud Y H W H. I'm going to call it God. God said to him, "Who placed a mouth in human beings, or who?" And he puts in parentheses, "Is it that makes one mute or deaf?" or open-eyed or blind, is it not I, comma, God? So in this translation, it's also 
left ambiguous in terms of what the tone is. I'm wondering if anyone has a translation in front of them that seems in the translation to suggest a tone or is it all left ambiguous? Barry? My internet may go out momentarily, so I'll make it fast. Um, okay. I, I don't have an answer to that question, but uh, continue where I was before. Um, uh, Abraham, Yaakov are other examples of uh, individuals who questioned God, um, who, who stood up, basically. Um, uh, God likes uh, a, a boxing matcher. Uh, wants, want, God wants someone to fight with, with God. Um, and and uh, so God is patient, and and uh, he hasn't. He'll he'll put up an attitude, you know. But I think it's a it's 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 a pra- it's, it's a fun boxing match for God. I mean, it's God plays with people this way. Uh, uh, Moshe is serious, but uh, this is how God plays. Um, great, great. I'm glad your internet lasted long enough for us to hear that. I hope that it it, it continues. I know it's frustrating when it's in and out. Um, okay. Um, any last comments on the shot here? Uh, just because I like teaching grammar um, here and there, reminding you of things because it's interesting to me and it might be interesting to some of you. Uh, Rebecca read the, it read it as o cheresh o pikeach because the adjective is pikeach to mean open eye. Do we get it from the very um, uh, first stories in the in the Torah where by ifkachet enehem that God opened up um, Adam and Eve's eyes, and it's not pikeach, it's fikeach. And just to remind you, anyone, anyone want to spit out the, um, the mnemonics that explain why it's fikeach and without a, a dagation to pay and not pikeach? Pay is one of the... Joanna, go ahead. There's a train going by right now, so hopefully you don't hear it and I can be over it. But um, it actually has to do with the word before, that if the word before, A, ends in a vowel sound and the trope, is one of those notes that are considered to be a connector note and not a separator note. The first letter of the next word loses the dagesh. Right. If the next word begins with beged kefet, one of those six letters. So pay is one of the six letters of beged kefet. When it begins a word or a syllable, it has a dagesh, making it a hard pay rather than a soft pay. Um, the last letter of O is a vav. Vav is part of the mnemonic ahoy, aleph, hey, vav, yud, also kamatz at the end. Um, and they're in conjunctive trap, mercha, tipcha. So the O, the, the, the vav at the O, de-digashes the pay of pikeach, and it's O, fikeach. Um, and I always thrill when I hear uh, laners laning that precisely, because the word is pikeach, but here it's O, fikeach. Rick? Um, hi, on the on the Peshat, on the Peshat, just the uh, the poetry of the of the sentence doesn't um, flow really well. Um, going from back to front, open eyed or or blind, right? The, the, that's two that's two uh, extremes, right? Fikeach or Iver. But um, the the first ones aren't like that. It's not like who can hear and who can not hear. It's it's Elaim and then Cheresh. How did we translate? Um, w- uh, according to this, Cheresh uh, is, is deaf. Correct. But Elaim isn't hearing. Mute. 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 Okay, so it's like, it, it's, not, it's not structured well. Um, I'm so glad you pointed that out. Yeah. Some of the okay. super, some of the, Rashi ignores that, but some of the super commentaries on Rashi actually go into deep dives on it. Um, that not only is it not in couplets, like 
Pikeach and Iver look like a couplet because they're opposites. So, and, but Elaim and Cheresh are not couplets. But you also have, of the four adjectives, Elaim, Cheresh, Pikeach, and Iver, they're actually kind of adjectival. They're, they're, they're somewhere between an adjective and a noun. Three of them are negative. One of them is positive. I hate to say it that way because in, in, in our era, we don't, we don't think of being, we're very careful to not refer to someone as, who is deaf as having any negativity in that person's life appropriately. But in terms of the way it's being used here, right? You've got Elaim, you don't want to be Elaim. You've got Cheresh, you don't want to be Cheresh. You have Pikeach, you want to be Kech. And then you have Iver, you don't want to be Iver. So you have, um, who do you think, Moshe, is the one who, puts a mouth in the person. So on here, I'm responding directly to your chvad peh or down, down, up, down. So it's, it's, it's either a nothing because like God's allowed to talk with not complete chiasm. Not everything has to be perfectly symmetrical, but in a text that has poetry to it, even in prose, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, or it, once you recognize it, it's remarkable, but you have to be thinking really slowly to recognize it. So kolakavot to you, Rick. And I don't have a good answer for it. No, no one, I've now come up with, I wasn't even—I wasn't even going to bring the super commentaries because no one comes up, comes up with a particularly interesting answer. I was going to mention, if no one had mentioned, that it's raised as a question. But at least three people on the Zoom have an excellent answer to it. So let's hear Joanna, Tova, and and Joel. So now Rick is getting at the comment that I was going to make earlier, also having to do with structure and setup of the sentence. Um, so it starts misam fella adam. And those pair well together, right? Your mouth, and that's where you speak from. We would want the sentence to continue, like, I, you know, for to create that parallelism. But that is missing here. And then as you go on in the, in the sentence towards the end, you even lose the verb. You don't have the sum anymore. Great. So my interpretation of that is the most language is used around the mouth because that's really the issue at the moment. It's stressing and emphasizing that particular one because that's what's been raised as the issue. Good, Joanna. I, I heard most of that. Your, your, your audio went in a little bit, but I heard most of it. And that explains exactly why Everett Fox, who tries to be very, very precise as a translator, does what he does maybe once a page at most or once a page, two pages which is puts in a parenthesis basically saying in order to make sense of this in english i have to insert words that are imply or missing in the hebrew so i'll read it once again god said to him who placed verb a mouth in human beings that's sam peh or who um he renders yasum he doesn't render yasum elaim as placed because you don't place muteness right so he renders as, or who, parentheses, is it that, and parentheses, makes one mute or deaf. So he takes yasum to mean a place in Sampeh, but in yasum, which is kind of a, it's almost like a, like, it's hard, it's written as a future tense, but it's not intended to be future. It's almost like a subjunctive. Who is it that, who, who makes one, and then he strings it together, ilaim ocheresh opikeach. Um, but the fact that he has to put that in, it reminds us that a verb either is missing or a verb changes its meaning. Um, and therefore, it's, it's, it's either a more artful sentence or a less artful sentence, depending on how one responds to that, that chunkiness. Tova? 
I certainly don't have a solution. I, I have more of a question. Um, is, in a way, I don't even quite understand the English translation of open-eyed. Is there any sense that that could mean something that wasn't positive? Or is it just, it, does it simply mean that you are able to see? Because open-eyed in and of itself, that's the translation that I have, doesn't explicitly mean that you can see. So right. I, I just, I guess I'm confused by what Pekak is intended to mean or how we're to understand that and whether there's any possibility that it does have a negative connotation. <laughs> My quick answer is I don't think so. Okay. If, if, if the Torah is our guide here. So um, if, 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 if people have a full Torah in there um, available, go quickly to... Um, Okay, chapter three, verse seven. Actually, just bring it up in Safari. What am I doing? One second. In case you don't all have it in here. Sometimes I forget how amazingly accessible. I'll show you the first time the root appears in the Torah, which um, which is our best clue as to what it means later, later on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, after Adam and Chava have eaten from the Tree, right? Open so look at verse six. But right. the woman saw that the tree was good yeah, to eat. Mean. And it was, and it was, uh, you know, what wonderful to uh, to the eyes. And it was a, a good kind of a tree in terms of making you wise. She took from its fruit. And she ate. She gave it to her husband. with her, and he ate. A passive verb. The, the subject of the verb is a nation. The eyes of the two of them were pakacht. So even if you don't, so it could be that pakacht means to open, or it could mean, and in which case it only means open eyes if ayin is attached to it, or pakacht can mean to open eyes. And in um, in modern Hebrew, and here's the jump, pikeach means clever, right? So clever in the sense that you see things as they are. So um, I don't have, I guess I could pull up the, the BDB, uh, the Brown Driver Briggs to see if deep in the etymology of the language itself, it means open in general or, or specific open eyes. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, okay, let's see. Pay, just amazing that we have this at our finger. Okay, pa-kach. So according to the BDB, which is a biblical dictionary, not a rabbinic Hebrew dictionary, um, and I always forget what some of these initial these, um, letters mean, open eyes and once hears, ears. So, it, so I think what's being, being told here is that in early forms, maybe not even Hebrew, it also might have meant opening one's ears to listen. Anything else interesting here? Open and remove rubbish heap. Hmm. Um, fakacha means to blossom in Arabic, um, Syriac blossom, um, which is a way of saying, and answer your question, I don't think we can read this as, as negative, right? Um, I, I don't know any, any usage of that root that has to, to do with something that's inherently negative, other than that, sometimes you open your eyes, you see things you'd rather not see. Um, so it, it, the, the structure of it being like thumbs down, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down, I think is um, um, something we can't, can't escape. 
I'd like to insert just quickly, uh, uh, um, Judy Weintraub in her uh, Yom Kippur uh, drosh that she gave later, uh, removing schmutz, remove, removing the schmutz that, that prevents us from hearing and seeing what's in front of us. Yeah. I, I just picked up from that definition that you just showed us. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, what, what does it mean to open your eyes? It means removing a layer, right? Like sight is the removal of a lid. Right, as long as the eye is operating as it's supposed to. Joel? It just sounds like um, God is as um, confused or misunderstand or um, doesn't understand um, what Moshe is saying as we are. Like, so, so he's saying, so God's saying, well, do you mean that you physically can't speak? You have something wrong with your mouth? In that case, who puts a mouth on, on God? And if, it's, if you're talking about your inability to speak clearly, then who makes people speak and who makes people? So he's, 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 he's re- referencing both kinds of disabilities there. That's really interesting. That's re- I've never thought of it that way, that, that God is covering all the bases because God also doesn't know what Moshe is saying when Moshe says, is that what you're saying? Interesting. Uh, great. That adds a lot of, uh, a lot of texture to, that, to, to, what, to God's response. Uh, Joanna and Tova, and then we'll read the Rashi's on this. It's really interesting. It would be really an interesting exercise to trace Pikeach throughout the Bible because one of the references that comes to mind is Hagar at the well, right? And it's the same thing, right? Her eyes are opened and all of a sudden she sees something that has been in front of her all along. And I wonder now if this adds a layer of complexity to our verse because you know, that question of, are you really seeing, and as a person, how much control over that do you yourself have to, you know, are you just kind of meandering, or are you really using all of the potential and everything that's been given to you to go forward? Great. And and that, reinf- that reinforces even more so the simple act of doing this and this, right? When my eyes are closed, everything that I could see with my eyes open is there. It's just that I'm not accessing it in my, you know, in, in, in my cortex, right? Because a thin layer of skin is, is over. I'm basically like, you know, I'm doing a circumcision by, by removing a piece of skin so I can actually now see the things I'm seeing. It reminds you of something that someone said, God, I forget his name for a second. I can't believe I forgot his name. He's, he's a well-known um, agnostic atheist and um, person who does mindfulness. And I cannot believe I'm forgetting his name, but he has a wonderful frame um, for meditation in which he says that you know how when it's a cloudy night you could be convinced that there are no stars they don't exist and the clouds remove themselves and all of a sudden there's an extraordinary planetarium and array up there and he says that's how we go through so many of our moments and what meditation does or other mindfulness practices it's not that it brings you to something new. It simply exposes you to something that was there. Your mind is extraordinarily rich and capacious. And, we're, and, and most of our minds, not even abilities, our minds, mindfulness is just obscured to us. So what, what is a, a meditation moment? It's when the clouds go away and you see the constellation. You see the stars up there. Right? So in, in the same way, sight is simply you know, allowing yourself to do this and see what was, what was there the whole time. Um, and sometimes that's, that's actually visual. And what you were saying, Joanne, about Hagar is sometimes it, it's, it, it's not just, 
it, it's it's a wow. It's I know you know to go a few generations later, God was in this place and I didn't realize it. But the fact that I didn't realize it doesn't mean that God wasn't there, right? The fact that I didn't realize that this could be a prayer moment before I was praying does not mean that it wasn't a prayer moment. It's just that I wasn't I wasn't open to it. My eyes weren't open to it. My consciousness wasn't open to it. So there's, there's 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 a lot of depth there. Okay, Tova and then Rick, and then I want to read this Rashi. <laughs> um, yeah, I just realized that I think there is a way to look at the verse that does give it a symmetry because it's talking about God speaking. Uh, who was it that made man, who put mouth in man that that is gave human beings the ability of speech. And then the contrast is both mute and deaf because mute is, and on the other hand, for some people unable to speak and unable to process speech mm. through hearing and then going, or who made them open-eyed, able to receive information and knowledge through the eyes or blind. Phenomenal. So this is a symmetry. Phenomenal. If we allow the symmetry to be like A, B, B, and then A, B. Yeah. yeah phenomenal. Particularly as we think about, um, yeah, that, 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 um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. That, that. That's a phenomenal way of reading that verse. Thank you for that, Tova. Rick. Okay, I wasn't going to say this, but you mentioned the eyelids and the circumcision, the, just the thin layer. Um, later on, I don't remember where, Moses says he's Arels Fatayim. Yeah. Right? And um, uh, when I lay in it, I go... Okay, but, but explain what, like, but unpack that for a second, because that's not an obvious association for everybody. Um, he, he says he's a, a, a uncircumcised lips. That, right. um, too, much, he does, too much flesh. Yeah. Um, and when I lay in it, I, I don't remember where it is. I, I uh, tried to find it really quick, but um, I think it's in Etnachta. I go, time when I do it, uh, just for fun. But um, because you brought that up, I thought I'd throw that in there. Great. Yeah, it, it it's not just a jokey connection as we associate circumcision um, and the and, and whatever the circumcised person's exposure to a greater spiritual reality is if we if we buy that line and uh, and and sight and speech in the sense that something fleshy is in the way and a barrier between you and what could be. That's what an eyelid is. Nothing wrong with an eyelid, but it's it's stop. It's it's it's, a, it's an amazingly thin barrier that stops all sight, right? Um, and the heart and the heart too, right? Um, right, right, all that. And and we've had this experience all the time. We've had it while teaching this class today. Sometimes our lips don't do what we want them to do, and our tongue does not do what we want them to do, and it's flesh. And to be aral fatai means I have too much skin there. Right. So these things are are, are really deeply connected. Okay. Let's look at the Rashi. Let's take uh, um, Rebecca off the hook because, um, well, do you want to be on the hook, Rebecca, or should I send someone else to read the Rashi? Uh, I don't mind. Okay, so go ahead. Okay. Mi som the gomer. Mi limedecha ledaber. Keshe hayita nadon lifne faro al hamizri. Amitri. Should I continue or translate? Uh, try that? to translate that. Okay. Um, so who has uh, who has made a, a mouth, etc. 
who taught you to speak when you were sentenced before Pharaoh for the Egyptian? Okay, so I think we all know, but just spell out what what scene uh, Rashi is referring to here. For killing the Egyptian. Right. So what Rashi is going to do, I'll kind of, uh, you know, spoiler alert, Rashi is going to take these images that we've been playing with. Is it, is it, is, are they chiastic? Is it in the pattern? Is it just a random burst? And is going to find a way, some of them easier, some less so to link it to something specifically in, um, in, uh, in um, Moshe's life. Right. So rather than there just being generic questions or who was the one who gives sight and speech, whatever, God is, according to Rashi, reading Moshe's question as, how can I know that you are this able for me? And God says, remember these moments. So remember that moment, Moshe, when you killed the Egyptian and you had to, in the imagination of the Midrash, be your own uh, defense attorney in court? Who was the one that gave you the power in that moment to state your case? Okay, as it were, we don't have that case, obviously, in the... um, in the Torah, we have him fleeing, but we're, but the Midrash, if you remember from when we studied that probably a year ago, I feel like it was in the middle of the pandemic. So it was, it was, it was a year ago. Uh, there are Midrashic explanations that say that Moshe was sentenced to death and, and all sorts of miracles happened that allowed him to escape the executioner's blow. Norm, Rachel? You just addressed part of my question, which is why is God bringing up an incident that's only in Midrash. Why is Rashi attributing Midrash to the memory of God? Yeah. And that it's until this text at this moment, I was completely unfamiliar with that Midrash that, that Moshe had ever been on trial. Right. I mean, it, it's a great meta question on the intertextuality of all of rabbinic material. Once a midrash is written by a rabbi Yochanan in the year 260 in Babylonia, on some level, it lives as its own being. Rabbi Yochanan was land of Israel, my mistake. Um, on, on another hand, it's like a, a, permanent, a permanent potential prism on the text itself that one can always go back to. Right. So sometimes Rashi um, interprets this verse through the prism of other verses in the Torah shot. And sometimes Rashi interprets this verse through the prism of a midrash on an earlier verse, particularly if and that, on that spot earlier, Rashi brought that midrash. And Rashi does bring that midrash. Um, we could find it quickly if we wanted to. Um, but there, there, there's a there's an extended midrash that Rashi quotes just a small piece of. It basically says that there was a process of of investigation, and Moshe was found, and Moshe was um, sentenced, and the executioner was delayed, and there was a the message didn't get the, the the Pharaoh's decree didn't get to the executioner on time, and Moshe was able to flee. Right, and so that ends up being helpful to Rashi as he's making this point, maybe because Rashi was as troubled by we were because Rashi didn't have Tova's extraordinary explanation as to why these phrases and why in this order. And so Rashi needs to find an explanation for it. And he finds it in a midrash that he himself had already brought down. Right. So that's the first one. Keep going, uh, Rebecca. Oh, me asum ilem. Me asa faro ilem. Shalom nitamets kemitzvat harigatacha. 
ve'et meshartav chershim shelo shamu betzavoto alecha. Okay, pause there. So he's dealt with me some originally, right? Who is the one who play, who allowed you to speak when you were your defense attorney? Now we got to do it Elam. So who is so if 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 God made Moshe um, powerful in speech, who is the Elam? Who is the the mute in this scene? Go ahead. Um, who made Pharaoh mute that he didn't insist on the commandment of killing you? Right. So in the in the Midrashic imagination, there's a court case or whatever a court case is like in ancient Egypt. And Pharaoh decrees in his heart that Moshe has to die, but can't get it out. He never he can't articulate or he can't articulate it quickly. Lahit amate is a really interesting verb here. Neat amate. And that, that that Pharaoh was not able to summon his omets, his strength. He could not produce the decree quickly enough. For your for your killing, so we've got, so now we've gotten through uh, Sampe, we've gotten through Elaim. So who was Cheresh? Keep going, and and made his servants deaf. So not only was Pharaoh not able to say the decree quickly and loudly enough, but even had he been able to, who made sure that the people who were going to listen to the decree and carried out couldn't hear that well? Go ahead. That they didn't hear his command uh, about you. Okay. And now we have this wonderful word, which we'll look at in Jastro, Ula. Ve'et espeklatorin hahorgim mi asa'am ivrim shelo ra'u keshebarachta min habima. Okay. So let's pause there. Look at Jastro and ispak, ispiklator. I, I, I feel like there should be a rather obvious um, connection to an English word, but I can't find it. If someone can, please let me know. An ispaklator or a speaklator speculator, but it's clear that it's related to that root in English speculator, but it's used as an arm bearer, an executioner, a torturer. So what I don't know is how to get from speculator to executioner, torturer, but it's apparently a a word for a for a Roman soldier who is responsible for carrying out torture and death penalty. So, um, so the, Moshe was able to speak. Pharaoh was mute. The advisors were deaf, and the speaklators were what? They were Ivrim. Keep going, uh, Rebecca. Um, yeah, the and the executioners who kill, uh, who made them blind that they didn't see when you fled from the stand and you escaped. Right. So the Bima is interesting here. You fled is the stand where he was being tried is the stand where he was going to be executed. So what Rashi has done is fanciful and lovely, right? Sampeh and Elaim and Cheresh uh, and Iver are now referring to specific moments. All of the, the of the, uh, uh, four of the five actually are referring to specific moments in, Ma- in Moshe's midrashic experience. What um, Rashi does not drush out is pikeach, which is interesting because he doesn't assign pikeach to anyone here, but the other ones all get a part. Right? Everyone gets a part in it. Um, okay, uh, since we have 30 seconds left uh, uh, and we're still in the middle of the Rashi, any last comments or questions on that piece, on that little trip through a previous midrash, Rebecca? 
or Leonard? And then well, they're all they're they're all positive outcomes of those things about being mute and deaf and and blind that we might think of as negative. These were all positive uh, outcomes. Great. So so sometimes when it's a wonderful point, lest we think that when God makes someone mute, as it were, it, it, it it's like a scourge. Sometimes it's to effect a very, a very specific outcome, which is to make sure that the right people can't speak and the right people can't hear and the right people, um, um, you know, are, 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 are blind. Rick. Um, uh, related to speculator, uh, isn't there a tool, a speculum that, um, doctors use or something so it's probably related some kind of torture device or something that a doctor that <laughs> I a doctor spec- uses i don't want to linger on it but i always thought speculum had to do with spec like making it what making something easier more visible because it it, it goes inside um, but i don't know i don't know can i respond because i just a speculator had to do a, one of its meetings with somebody who examines and in ancient times, examining often meant torturing. People uh, were tortured to examine good. them. Good. I, I mean, not good, but good. Not good, good connection. Yeah. Joanna, last comment, then we'll close it. So just to follow up, as we were talking, I Googled, and the Latin word speculator means um, a spy, a scout, an investigator, an examiner. Ah, so, spy, scout. That's helpful. Right. Ah, language is so fascinating, particularly as we kind of contract 2,000 years of it into one short discussion. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA. LA.org.